Welcome to Dr. Watt, an anti-Trinitarian, demonstrated in a review of Dr. Miller's letter to the editor of the Unitarian Miscellany, as read by Michael Wyatt. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discount, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog if you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add, that's A-D-D, at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of Dr. Watts, an anti-Trinitarian, demonstrated in a review of Dr. Miller's letter to the editor. Following is a review of a letter written by Professor Samuel Miller. Professor Miller had preached a sermon in which he had noted that Unitarians are not Christians, and in response, a Unitarian periodical had published a heated attack on Miller. Miller thus wrote a reply to the attack, but the Unitarian periodical would not print it. Miller's reply was then published separately. James M. Wilson, that's W-I-L-L-S-O-N, reviews Miller's letter here and points out that he clearly refutes the Unitarians' published attack. There was only one problem with Miller's argument. He claims that Isaac Watts was a Trinitarian. Watts was not, in fact, a Trinitarian, and Wilson considered this point important enough to demonstrate from Watts' own work that he does not hold to the orthodox view of the Trinity. After citing of Watts, the portions of Watts' writings, Wilson states, quote, In these quotations, Watts cannot be misunderstood. He most distinctly denies the existence of three persons in the Trinity and makes the Son and Holy Ghost to be mere faculties, physical faculties or attributes. The Son and Holy Ghost, in his view, that is, Watts' view, are no more persons than the human understanding and will are persons, end quote. Thus, Isaac Watts, a favorite hymn writer of evangelicals, actually held to what Wilson, Miller, and Turretin all agree in this book is a damnable heresy. For as Wilson points out, Turretin maintains that no anti-Trinitarian can be saved while continuing in the belief of an anti of anti-Trinitarianism. Prefatory remarks: The progress of Arian and Socinian heresies in the Reformed churches, both in Europe and America, has given just ground of alarm to the friends of truth, to all who feel an interest in the glory of the Lord God of Israel to all who believe that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Turretin maintains, 
that no anti-Trinitarian can be saved while continuing in the belief of anti-Trinitarianism. One text on which he relies for the support of this position is 1 John 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. End quote. And that um, reference is from Turretin's chapter on the Trinity. Jesus Christ is the true God as well as the Son of God, and by the knowledge of him as Jehovah Jesus, God's eternal Son by necessary generation and exhibited in humanity as the Father's righteous servant, justification unto life eternal is procured. Hence, Turretin reasons that those who are ignorant of the only of the one only living and true God subsisting in three persons, co-equal, co-essential, and co-eternal, cannot have life eternal. The opinion of this very eminent divine has been the current opinion of orthodox men. Arianism, Sabellianism, Socinianism, all of them denying the doctrine of a true and proper trinity of persons in the Godhead have been considered damnable heresies. Dr. Miller, a professor in the Princeton Divinity School, takes the same ground in the letter reviewed in the following pages. The writer of the review of Miller's letter hoped that Dr. Miller's brethren in the General Assembly according, accorded his views, especially that Dr. Neal, Dr. Janeway, and others, the publishing committee of the Presbyterian Magazine, would accord Miller's doctrine that anti-Trinitarianism is a damnable heresy. He wrote the review and sent it to the publishers of the Presbyterian Magazine, signing his name in full according to their own terms. This review had been, has been refused a place in the magazine. Why? Do those reverend doctors think Dr. Miller has gone too far? Are they unwilling to compliment as highly as the writer of the review has done? Are they sensible that they have Arians in their congregations in Philadelphia? These are questions which the committee will understand. May there not have been another cause? They sing the psalms and hymns of Dr. Isaac Watts in Arch Street and in the Spruce Street churches. They perceive that Dr. Miller's reviewer had, has proved to the satisfaction every, of everyone who will read him that Watts was and his writings now are as decidedly opposed to the doctrine of the Trinity as Sicinius, Arius, Channing, or other anti-Trinitarians. Were they afraid to let their people know that they are singing psalms and hymns composed by a gross heretic? It is pretty evident the committee had still another reason. Dr. Miller has enumerated among the articles which form the very essence of Christianity, total depravity, and the vicarious sufferings of Christ. There are hundreds and thousands of Hopkinsians in connection with the General Assembly. If we take Dr. Griffin's late work on the Atonement as the index of the doctrines of Hopkinsians generally, then Dr. M pronounces all Hopkinsians guilty of holding damnable heresies. For Dr. Griffin denies that man is totally depraved, that so far from this his intellectual powers are as good as Adam's were and that his active powers 
only are depraved. Again, Dr. Griffin denies that sin was imputed to Christ as our representative head. He denies, of course, the substitutionary, or to use Dr. Miller's words, the vicarious nature of the sufferings of Christ. According to Dr. Miller, he who denies either the doctrine of man's total depravity by nature or the substitutionary nature of Christ's obedience rejects what enters into the very essence of Christianity and is as far from the way of salvation as the infidel Hume. Were the committee of publication unwilling to let their people know that the amiable and learned professor has denounced Hopkinsians as damnable heretics, the professor ought not to be so treated by his brethren in Philadelphia. When he pronounces an opinion from the professorial chair, why should they not let his doctrine be heard? That they were alarmed on this point is evident from the fact that they have crossed the part of the review referring to this subject as the reader will find explained in a note. In truth, the committee dare not trust what they must know to be true among their people. Dr. Eli said it was thought it would not be prudent to trust the review among their people or words to that effect. He was requested to assign the reasons for the refusal by a note of which the following is a copy. Saturday, quote, Saturday, quote, Dear Doctor, I have called several times for the manuscript review of Miller's letter and have not had the pleasure of finding you in. As you are signified to me that it cannot have a place in the Presbyterian magazine, will you have the goodness to leave it for me with the reasons for its non-insertion that on my next call it may be obtained? Yours. J.R. Will's quote, Reverend Dr. Eli, the manuscript, the manuscript was returned without any written reasons for the non-insertion. In justice, however, to Dr. Eli, it may be worth notice that he declared his willingness for its insertion and said he was not afraid to let the whole truth be known. Such a declaration is certainly agreeable to the honest frankness of his contrast theological quarterly review his works on the science of mind and others. What the reasons were that influenced the two other doctors to refuse the review a place in the magazine, intelligent professors of all parties will easily decide. How much has the cause of truth, how much has the church of the living God to expect from a magazine conducted on such dastardly principles? As to the style and temper of the review, let men of learning and candor judge to the decision of such men who love the Lord Jesus Christ, his church, his truth, his children, the reviewer commits fearlessly the following pages. J.R.W. Philadelphia, 1821, May 22nd. Review. A letter to the editor of the unit Unitarian Miscellany in reply to an attack by an anonymous writer in that work on a late ordination sermon delivered in Baltimore by Samuel Miller, D.D., author of the sermon, Baltimore, published by E.J. Cole, R.J. Matchett, printer, 1821. We naturally look with interest into anything from the pen of a writer so well-known and so respectable as the author of this letter. His review of the 18th century and his letters on church government, together with the important station which he occupies in the church 
in which he fills with so much reputation to himself give peculiar weight to the opinions which he expresses on any of the great questions in theology that divide public sentiment in our country. His well-known amiableness and liberality are a sure pledge that when he utters anything that appears severe, it must proceed from a full conviction of its truth and not from any angry passions. In the sermon alluded to in the title page, the author of the letter maintains that the doctrines of the Socinians or Unitarians, such as the rejection of the Trinity, of the divinity of Christ, and of the atonement which he made for sin, are another gospel than that that taught by Christ and his apostles, and that the Unitarian is not entitled to the name Christian. This position he illustrates and enforces with such emphasis as to make it impossible that he should be misunderstood. The author, in taking this ground, assails the enemy on a quarter the most alarming, for the chief reliance of the modern Sassinians and Arians for the diffusion of their opinions has been placed on the liberality of sentiment which they profess and seem to expect of those who differ from them. They wish to be considered as attached to the Congregational Church as really one with the great body of Congregationalists in the Northern State. Their new chapel in New York, their style, they style the First Congregational Church. Dr. M. unmasks their battery and charges them openly with bringing in damnable heresies. He had reason to expect that the enemy would not be disposed to abandon the citadel without resistance. He had reason to expect that Unitarians would reply to him, but if reliance may be placed on their professions of liberality, charity, and politeness, he had not reason to expect that the reply would be so bitter, so virulent, and that proved to be, in fact. The strictures of the Unitarian on the ordination sermon were published in the Unitarian Miscellany, a magazine devoted to the cause of what Dr. M. calls damnable heresy, under the signature of, quote, a Baltimore Unitarian, unquote. The author of the sermon is called upon in the most pointed manner to explain and defend himself, and ready to render a reason of the faith that he holds, he writes to the editor of the Unitarian Miscellany a letter in reply to the attack of, quote, a Baltimore Unitarian. Though a solemn pledge had been given in the first number of the Miscellany that pieces from all parties, when written with moderation and candor, should be inserted, yet the reply to the Unitarian of Baltimore was refused a place. The reason of the refusal will be ascribed by every unprejudiced mind to the proper cause. The antagonist was too powerful to be admitted into the Unitarian arena, where he boldly offered himself for the combat. They were alarmed. The editors shrunk from the discussion, dreaded the result, dreading the result. It is impossible to ascribe the refusal to any other cause, for the letter is written in all that spirit of meekness and urbanity so characteristic of its author. He does not indeed shrink from the open avowal and plain declaration of his views, and an honorable adversary could not have expected that he should. But the insertion of the letter was refused because they apprehended danger. Dr. M., quote, availed himself of the only other method of coming before a Christian public, end quote, the publication of his letter in a pamphlet. 
The first charge brought against him by the Unitarian of Baltimore is that, is that an ordination sermon was an improper occasion for introducing what Unitarians deem offensive. This charge he repels on the ground that his remarks did properly belong to his subject, that the discussion would have been defective without them. Quote, that fidelity to his master in heaven required him to bear the testimony and give the warning which have proved to some so unacceptable, unquote, and that Unitarian ministers have brought forward their peculiar opinions in ordination sermons. The second charge is that, quote, Dr. M. will not allow Unitarians to be Christians, end quote, to which he replies, quote, this charge I do not deny, and my only answer to it will be an attempt not to explain or apologize, but to justify, end quote. He says, quote, If I were to define Christianity as it appears to me exhibited in the Word of God, I should say it is a religion which provides salvation for totally depraved and guilty sinners, and which, for this purpose, sets before them pardon and acceptance with God through the atonement and righteousness of a divine mediator and sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fewer words, it is a religion which secures to those who embrace it a title to heaven and a preparation for heaven through the atoning blood and sanctifying spirit of an almighty surety. This, in my view, forms the essence of Christianity, the very life and glory of the system, which, being taken away, it is destroyed. It is no longer the same religion, but another gospel. Of course, he who does not receive the doctrine of man's guilt and depravity by nature and doctrine of the divinity and atonement of the Son of God and of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit does not receive the gospel and is consequently, quote, no Christian, end quote. This is to speak out nobly and, nobly and approaches to the magnanimous firmness of the reformers of the 16th century, Thus spoke Luther, Calvin, and Knox of the heresies of the Church of Rome. Short of, in brackets, short as this abstract of Christianity is, we find, quote, the guilt of man by nature, end quote, that is, the imputation of Adam's sin, the depravity of man by nature, from infancy, among the doctrines which form the essence of Christianity. He goes on to say that the, tr quote, the true and proper divinity of Christ and of his vicarious sacrifice and atonement are essential doctrines of the gospel. That he who rejects those fundamental truths, however respectable, virtuous, and apparently devout he may be, rejects Christianity, all caps, as really, though not under precisely the same circumstances, yet as really as any deist ever did that he cannot with propriety be called a Christian in any sense, and that, persisting in this rejection, he is on just as dangerous a ground as Herbert or Hume, and must be considered as equally far from the way of salvation, end quote, end of brackets. The sections, in, and this is a footnote, the sections enclosed in brackets are crossed in the manuscript by its presumed some one of the committee of publication. Why? End of footnote. 
The Unitarian of Baltimore is most provoked by the declaration of the author of the sermon that, quote, the gay, the fashionable, the worldly, and even the licentious, end quote, are the classes of society to whom the Unitarian preachers are the most acceptable. Dr. M. establishes this position most satisfactorily. Indeed, it needs no proof to anyone acquainted with either the past history or present state of the church. Quote, my Baltimore accuser, end quote, says Dr. M., quote, dwells much and pathetically on what he considers a gross violation of Christian charity in speaking as I have done of Unitarians. From what he says on this subject, I conclude that he understands the word charity in a sense which, though current enough in common society among a thousand other popular crudities is certainly not found in scripture and ought to receive no countenance from any accurate thinker. According to him, Christian charity consists in entertaining a favorable opinion of others, however widely they may differ from us on the most essential points, in supposing that they have inquired after truth as cordially as we have done, and in taking for granted that there is as much reason to hope that they will be finally accepted of God as that we ourselves shall be accepted. I assert with confidence that the word charity is never used in this sense in Scripture, and that it ought not to be so used by anyone, especially when speaking of charity as a Christian duty. The word charity, as used in Scripture, is equivalent to the word love. To exercise charity towards another in the language of the Bible is to love him. If the writer's ideas of the nature of Christian charity be correct, then our blessed Savior most grievously offended against this duty when he said to the scribes and Pharisees, You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? If he be correct, the Apostle John no less palpably violated this duty when he said in his second epistle, He that abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ he hath both the Father and Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. The Apostle Paul, too, if this be true, lays himself open to a similar charge when in writing to the Galatians he declared, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. But will any dare to say that there was a want of charity in these cases? The cry of charity is raised by all errorists, all heretics, all who are declining from the truth or relaxing the tone of truth or of church order. The unwary are caught in the snare. Men are made to believe that to say anything against heresy held by anyone is a gross violation of charity and inconsistent with Christian liberality. He who will strive for the faith of the gospel, who will contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints, is denounced as uncharitable, as illiberal, as bigoted. So the heretic of Baltimore denounced Dr. M., the enlightened and scriptural view given of this subject in the preceding quotation cannot fail to do good. We are not to be deterred from preaching the truth and defending it against the error, errors and heresies of the times because heretics and errorists cry out bigotry. 
the last topic of the Baltimore Unitarian, which Dr. M notices, quote, is the list of distinguished Unitarians with which he decorates his pages, end quote. The author of the letter confesses his impression that, quote, Locke and Newton are treated with great injustice when their names are inserted in the catalogs of Unitarians, end quote. Bishop Clayton, he admits, was not a sound Trinitarian. Hoadley, that's H-O-A-D-L-Y, quote, very much of a latitudinarian, end quote. Chillingworth, a very unsteady character, a Protestant and Papist by turns. At length, he died a Sassinian soon after having solemnly denied that he was one, end quote. But, says Dr. M, granting this, granting that not only Holy and Chillingworth, but Law and Blackburn and multitudes more of equal literary fame belong to the same class. What is the consequence? Why, that a number of regular clergymen of the Church of England who had subscribed the articles and were in the habit of solemnly reciting the prayers of that church did not believe a word of either, but continued from time to time deliberately to violate their vows and insult their God. End quote. It is gratifying to hear Dr. M. thus prostrate the claims of the adversary to respect from the names which he musters, and thus strongly reprobate the practice of swearing to support creeds and confessions, while they who so swear do not believe them. While Dr. M. gives to the Unitarians some of the distinguished men that they claim, he remarks, quote, I am particularly anxious to separate at least one name from the company in which it is placed, end quote. Quote, against placing the pious and heavenly-minded Watts in such company, I feel constrained to enter my solemn protest, end quote. The grounds on which he supports this protest are that Watts, in his, in his work entitled Orthodoxy, Orthodoxy and Charity United, comes to a formal and solemn conclusion that Sassinians are not Christian, that his hope of finding Locke in heaven was founded on the confidence, confident persuasion that he was not a Sassinian. Dr. M. thinks that Watts never changed his mind, otherwise he would have called in his psalms and hymns especially his doxologies, in all which the Trinity is so strongly acknowledged, end quote. To be able to honestly to assent to this position would be gratifying. To dissent from an opinion of this amiable and distinguished divine on a point about which he is, quote, particularly anxious, end quote, and to be forced by unquestionable evidence to assent to that against which he enters his solemn protest is painful. The known candor of the author, however, affords this relief, that he will be as ready as any one to assent to the evidence, should it prove decisive that Watts was a Unitarian, and that it shall appear he has formed a mistaken estimate of that writer, he will, with his accustomed candor, admit the truth, however unpleasant. His elevated standing in the church and his praiseworthy firmness in the cause of truth forbid the thought that he would descend from the commanding station of a champion for orthodoxy and for the honor of our glorious Redeemer and for the glory of the one God subsisting in three persons to become the humble apologist of any one man, however great his fame, who by his writing had not only put in jeopardy 
but had really abandoned those doctrines, which Dr. M so clearly proves to be the very essence of Christianity. This discussion is important, for should it prove to be a fact that he was really an anti-Trinitarian, and that his unwise and imprudent speculations, which Dr. M admits were heretical, we weaken our case by defending him as, quote, pious and heavenly-minded, end quote, while we denounce those who hold his very opinions as no more entitled to the Christian name than Herbert or Hume, end quote. Farther, his works are in many hands and his influence confessedly great. Should his readers be induced by the authority of Dr. M or any other divine of high and deserved reputation to view, quote, his speculations, end quote, as harmless and his orthodoxy as indisputable, they would be induced to embrace his opinions and thus our defense would be worse than ineffectual. A court of inquiry on his final state we are not authorized to hold, but his opinions coming down to us with the sanction of his name are fair subjects of examination on account of the influence they may have on the cause of truth and on the purity of the gospel for the defense of which we are set by him to whom Watt as a man standeth or falleth. But let us examine the reason, reasons of Dr. M's protest. Socinians, says Dr. Watts, are not Christians. End quote. Do we not all know how bitterly Dr. Priestley, the Socinian, opposed the Arians? He thought their doctrine of the pre-existence of the soul of Christ almost as great a heresy as that of the Trinity. When he visited Massachusetts, at least one Arian minister in Salem refused him admission to his pulpit and said that on Dr. Priestley's plan he would despair of salvation. So we perceive that Watts may have been an Arian and yet have no hope of salvation for Locke embracing Socinianism. And Dr. M knows that the great body of those Unitarians whom he denounces as no Christians are Arians and not Socinians. As to, quote, his psalms, hymns, and doxologies, end quotes, containing strong acknowledgments of the Trinity, he will permit us to doubt. What evidence have we of his belief in this doctrine from his psalms and hymns? The declaration that Christ is, quote, God's eternal son, end quote, is Dwight's and not Watts, for it is well known that it was not in his imitation of the second psalm. Sabellians, Dr. M. well knows, might and did speak of God the, quote, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost, three in one, end quote, as, familiar, as familiarly as any Trinitarian, though they denied utterly that there are three persons in the Godhead and maintained that the names Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were three names of one person, called Father as devising, Son as accomplishing, and Holy Ghost as applying salvation. To drive them from this subterfuge, the term person was applied by the Orthodox and adopted in the Confessions of the Church. Dr. M. has read the chapter in Calvin's Institutions on the Trinity and knows that it records ample testimony to the truth of these facts. On this subject, we refer the reader to Nolan on the authenticity of the Greek Vulgate. Neither the Orthodoxy, Orthodoxy and Charity United nor the psalms, hymns, and doxologies of Watts afford a shadow of evidence that their author was not a Sabellian or an Arian. 
he might have written all that they both contain and yet have denied with the Sabellian a trinity of persons or with the Arian the divinity of the Savior. Indeed, that the erudite Dr. M, notwithstanding his particular anxiety, should be able to produce no better testimony of Dr. Watts' orthodoxy affords a very strong presumption that it cannot be found. After all, we should not prefer so great a charge as that of heresy against so celebrated a man on presumption. Let us hear him speak for himself. He says, and this is a footnote, uh, the following is a footnote, uh, preface to the Arian invited to the Orthodox faith, Watts Works, Volume 6, page 274, London, 1813. Quote, I think it also proper to acknowledge that I was at that time inclined to suppose these personal representations in Scripture, especially so far as relates to the Blessed Spirit, were really to be understood in a more proper and literal sense than I now find necessary. And on that account, I did then express the doctrine of three persons or three distinct intelligent agents in terms a little stronger and more unlimited than my judgment now approves. For since that time, I have more carefully considered the Jewish idioms of speech wherein powers, virtues, and properties are frequently personalized or represented in a personal manner." End quote. Again, and this is uh, the same work uh, from Watts' Works, Volume 6, page 299, quote, But when the Word and Spirit are called persons, which are supposed to be really but divine powers of the Father, whose inward distinction we know not, the term person is then used in a figurative or metaphorical sense, and not in so proper and literal a sense as when the Father is called a person. Yet that there is sufficient distinction between them to lay a foundation for such a distinct personal representation of them in Scripture will appear by the following consideration. Quote, from a footnote, preface to the Arian invited to the Orthodox faith, Watts Works, Volume 6, page 371. Are not the various faculties of man often represented under personal characters in common discourse? How frequently is a man represented as conversing with his own mind, communing with his own heart, following the dictates of his own will, or subduing his will and subjecting it to his reason. Do we not freely say, my mind denies her assent to such a doctrine, or my will resists no more but yields itself up to the conduct of my understanding? And since human powers are thus represented as persons, why may not the word and spirit which are divine powers be thus represented also? And why may not God be represented as a person transacting his own divine affairs with his word and spirit under personal characters since a man is represented as transacting human affairs with his understanding, mind, will, reason, fancy, or conscience in a personal manner, end quote. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. Thank you. Again, quoting from a preface to the Arian invited to the Orthodox faith by Watts in his works, volume six, page 380, quote, and in the divine nature and as the divine nature as God has something in him transcendently superior to all our ideas of human souls, so the powers of a God which, in condescension to our weakness, are called his word and his spirit, 
may have something in them, even in this respect, so transcendently superior to the powers of the human soul as to be more proper subject of such personal characters and ascriptions as the Holy Scriptures have attributed to them. And yet their distinction or difference may not be so great as to make them distinct conscious minds. End quote. Quote, And if any single term signified the power of operation or moving the body, I would apply that to the Holy Spirit, because I think this analogy and resemblance would come something near to the scriptural ideas of the Word and Spirit, the one being represented as an intelligent, volative power, and the other as an intelligent, effective power. End quote. Quote, here let it be observed that in explaining these distinctions in the divine nature itself, I choose to call the second person the Word rather than the Son. For as some later writers suppose that the Sonship of Christ rather refers to his human nature or to his mediatorial office than to his Godhead, so I must declare I am much inclined to that sentiment. End quote. Again, and this is uh, page... 382 of Watts' works from Preface to the Arian Invited to the Orthodox Faith. Quote, May we not therefore conceive the Word and Spirit as two divine faculties, virtues, or powers in the essence of God? End quote. And, same work, page 383, quoting, Quote, but his word and his spirit seem to be represented in scripture as the physical principles of knowing, willing, and efficiency, and therefore I will call them powers, end quote. In page 308, he explains what he means by his doxologies. Quote, If the word and spirit are those divine powers by which God doth everything, may not each of them be called God? May we not say the Word is God, the Spirit is God? May not what each of them does be appropriated to God, since they are the powers by which God operates? End quote. Do the doxologies of this man prove his orthodoxy? In these quotations, Watts cannot be misunderstood. He most distinctly denies the existence of three persons in the Trinity, and makes the Son and Holy Ghost to be mere faculties, physical faculties, or attributes. The Son and Holy Ghost, in his view, are no more persons than the human understanding and will are persons. To prove this is the burden of the whole essay entitled The Arian Invited to the Orthodox Faith, occupying 175 Octavio pages. Anyone who reads it, though he must be shocked if he is orthodox with its monstrous heresies, will be convinced that he was in the full vigor of his mind. Even if he had not, we find it among his works where his friends, who had a right to judge of his sanity, have left it. In fact, the Arian invited to the Orthodox faith was written as appears by the date of his preface, May 8, 1725, that is, 23 years before the year of his death, 1748. And that's quoted from uh, Watts' Works, Volume 6, page 276. He was then neither a thoughtless youth nor doting old man, for both of these have been asserted by his friends. 
that he wrote these heresies when he, quote, fancied himself a teapot, end quote, is an apology which, though offered by some of his advocates, he would have disdained. We find the same sentiments in his questions concerning Jesus, the Son of God, in the preface to which he says, and this is preface to the Arian invited to the Orthodox faith, Watts Works, volume 6, page 391, quote, He also takes the freedom to say these papers are the product of that part of life when the powers of mind and body were in full vigor, end quote. Whatever Dr. M may think of his being, quote, preeminently conscious, conscientious and disinterested, end quote, and that's from uh, a letter dated or, uh, page 33, we see that he has told us expressly that he did change his mind. Let no one think that Dr. M is charged with willful, willful misrepresentation. It is impossible that he could have known the heresies of Dr. Watts and have written as he has. Of this he is cordially acquitted. Doddridge, Anderson, McMaster, Dr. Erskine, Dr. Ely, and others, especially President Edwards, that's Jonathan Edwards, exhibit Watts' opinions in the same light in which they are represented in the, in the preceding pages. Who will doubt the discrimination of President Edwards? Who will accuse that illustrious scholar and divine of a disposition to do injustice to Watts? Of his scheme of the pre-existence of the soul of Christ, he speaks in the following terms. And this is from Edwards' Observations, Volume 2. Quote, According to what seems to be Dr. Watts' scheme, the Son of God is no distinct divine person. He is the same with the Father. So far as he is a divine person, he is the same person with the Father. So that in the covenant of redemption, the Father covenants with himself and he takes satisfaction of himself and so forth. Unless you will say that one nature covenanted with the other, the two natures in the same person covenanted together, and one nature in the same person took satisfaction of the other nature in the same person. But how does this confound our mind instead of helping our ideas or making them more easy and intelligible? End quote. Thus, we perceive that that great and good man did not believe that Dr. Watts owned the doctrine of the Trinity, though he had before him no more evidently than Watts on the glory of Christ. What would he have said had he read the Arian invited to the Orthodox faith or the prayer quoted by McMaster? It is hoped that the friend of truth will hereafter abandon him to the Unitarian. His reason, reasoning in the Arian invited is precisely the same as Dr. Priestley's had published in many works, and it is well known that Dr. Priestley always claimed Watts and Dr. M admits that however heretical Priestley was, he was not uncandid. Our cause does not depend on Watts any more than on Priestley, Belsham, or Lindsay, but on the infallible word of God. After a violent controversy, the friends of Oregon had to abandon him and no one now doubts that he was an anti-Trinitarian. With him and with other heretics of his stamp, history will record the name of Watts, and posterity will wonder that any one Orthodox man ever defended him as we now do than that any one did Oregon. Truth can and will triumph without the aid of the names either of Watts or Oregon. 
and that's O-R-I-G-E-N. Other attempts to defend him will only provoke a more full exposure of the extent and enormity of the heresies of Watts of which the Christian community knows yet comparatively little. This is not intended for the amiable author of the letter. From his candor and frankness, other such attempts are not to be expected from him. Every impartial and other orthodox man who will study Watts with attention must come to the solemn conclusion that he is incomparably more dangerous than Sicinius, Cullens, Priestley, or Channing. The reader is forewarned when he enters their pages and armed against the poison. But when he reads Watts, he enters his pages with all his presuppositions in his favor, with a full persuasion that he is a Trinitarian, that he is Orthodox. Dr. M does not indeed say so much, but the incautious reader will infer it. And believing him, quote, pious and heavenly-minded, end quote, end quote, preeminently conscientious and disinterested, end quote, quote, a great and good man to whom the interests of vital piety are much indebted, end quote, he will drink in his heresies proposed with so much show of piety until he is intoxicated with the drought so skillfully prepared. Dr. M. will regret as much as anyone when he discovers the fact that he has contributed to the increase of the danger. James R. Wilson, Newburgh, New York, April 23, 1821. This ends the reading of Dr. Watts, an anti-Trinitarian, demonstrated in a review of Dr. Samuel Miller's letter to the editor of the Unitarian Miscellany in 1821. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add, that's A-D-D, at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Dr. Watts, an Anti-Trinitarian, demonstrated in a review of Dr. Samuel Miller's letter to the editor of the Unitarian Miscellany, 1821, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation bookshelf and Puritan bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed book.